Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I uh, have to admit this morning, and maybe it might be good for you, is that um, I sang too loud. And I noticed my voice was giving away even as we finished, uh, finished that last song. And so I may be a little quieter today than normal, though you may, you may enjoy that. Um, well, we're going to be continuing our study in, in James chapter 5. Uh, James chapter 5, uh, this morning where our focus is uh, verses 4 through 6, though I will read verses 1 through 6 for context. But specifically this morning, our focus will be verses uh, James chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. I've titled my sermon this morning, An Honest Day's Work for an Honest Day's Pay. An honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Uh, in this passage, James is going to give uh, the wicked rich, uh, those who are wicked and rich, if you will, three terrifying consequences of exploiting those in their charge. He warns these rich landlords that the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of the Sabbath, will, he will, number one, receive the cries of the exploited. He will ex- receive the cries of the exploited. Number two, he will repay with vengeance and justice. He will repay with vengeance and justice. And number three, he will resist their devices. He will resist their devices. Let me pray and then I'll read the passage. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning that we could be here Lord, I thank you that I could be standing here before these beloved uh, people, these uh, dear saints in Christ. Father, I pray that you would, your word would be clearly preached. It would be preached with power and passion. Uh, Yet, Lord, I pray that I would decrease, that you may increase. Lord, I thank you that your word can and will do the work which you have promised it to do and will not return void. We thank you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in... Let me read uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of want and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. In God's sovereign timing, we have come to a passage that that I think that James, that in James that I think directly connects to some current events that we're seeing uh, in our culture. In James five through one through six, we have a group of wicked people who are oppressing another group of defenseless defenseless people. We will see in this passage, I believe. Uh, the biblical answer of what happens when wicked folks who choose to live a life of want and pleasure on the backs of those uh, suffering, we'll see what happens when they do so. 
we will see the biblical answer of what happens with those folks who are suffering, the oppressed. We have the oppressors and we have the oppressed. We will observe how God loves the oppressed and how He instructs them to live, how He instructs them to live considering their difficulties. And so, in short, in short, beloved, we will see biblical justice at work. If you're wondering, if you're wondering, if you happen to be wondering, like I am, about the current battles over what is called social justice, especially justice for certain groups of people, and you're struggling to understand these things biblically. I think that you will learn a lot over the next two or three weeks as we consider these, this next, these next few verses. Beloved, we live, we live in a complicated world, which is becoming more complicated as it, even as it becomes more organized. According to an article on a website called The Conversation, uh, Jarrah Neal Willis, a nurse, usually clocked in a few minutes before her, the start of her shift and stayed late whenever her patients needed help. Her lunch breaks were often cut short by requests from doctors and patients and families. Willis and her colleagues, however, claimed that they were not paid for those few extra minutes they worked before and after their shifts or for working during their lunch breaks. According to the article, it wasn't because of mischievous gremlins falsifying the time cards in a back room, but settings in the software that the hospital used tracked their comings and goings. Two features alone, rounding and automatic break deductions could result in the loss of up to 44 minutes a day, or $1,382 a year at the federal minimum wage. Again, according to the article, the preferred rounding increment in most cases is a quarter hour. So arriving at work at 8.53 a.m. would be rounded to 9, and 8.52 would be rounded to 8.45. They could show up a little late or a little early in order to to game the system, if you will, or to, to avoid rounding, but companies have extra weapons to make sure that they don't do so. They, they use policies and discipline to make sure that they log in or, or, or uh, punch in when they're, supposed, when they're supposed to. You could show up, uh, say it in a different way, you could show up late or leave early, or you could show up late or leave, leave late, uh, but you would be flagged for discipline under that attendance policy. So it seems, again, the system is gamed against the employee. Now, According to the Economic Policy Institute, it estimated that $15 billion is lost to wage theft every year by employees, according to, according to this report. But that doesn't, that doesn't count the potential for wage theft, which I just described. Now the question is, does God care about these things? And I think the answer is a definite yes. He does care about all of our dealings. He demands us to be honest in our dealings because because he hates a dishonest scale. He expects workers to give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. But beloved, we need to understand this is really a first world issue, right? It's a first world issue. God cares about it, but he cares even more how you handle these situations. He cares whether you have a godly or an ungodly reaction to them. How you deal with it on a daily basis. 
Since the dawn of history, man has been taking advantage or even exploiting his fellow man. According to another article on a website called The CQ Researcher, in July 2003, after picking grapes for 10 hours in a 100-degree heat of California San Joaquin Valley, uh, Asuncion Valdivia, Asuncion Valdivia collapsed. Co-workers poured water on him, but the crew boss didn't summon an ambulance, even though Valdivia couldn't walk without help. Instead, the boss told Valdivia's son to take his father home. Minutes after being put in the car, however, Valdivia started foaming at the mouth and he died. Now, heat stroke deaths, if you do a little research, are not uncommon among the nation's farm workers, nor are wretched living conditions or abusive bosses. Crew bosses, independent contractors who hire migrants for temporary work on farms, have been notorious for years in some parts of Florida and other states, for treating workers, especially those who are undocumented, like slaves. In Florida, more than 200 bosses and their assistants have been barred from the industry, according to this article. Besides coping with abusive crew bosses, farm workers must endure substandard living conditions. For example, migrants working in citrus groves near Lake Placid, Florida, uh, near Lake Okeechobee, have been discovered living in crowded shacks with no running water or bathroom facilities. And in one of the dilapidated buildings, according to this article, snakes were visible through holes in the floor. Again, I ask, does God care about these things? And the answer is absolutely, He cares. God cares about the plight of of the poor and the disadvantaged among us. And so should we. But the question that we must answer is, how should we respond to these things? How should we respond to these things when we come across them? There are Christians who believe it's our job to right every wrong. We are to fight against every evil, every injustice. But is this true? Are we to fight against every injustice that we see? I believe that we will answer this question over the next couple of weeks. In our passage today, James continues to call out these wicked, wealthy landlords who are ex- exploiting poor Christians. Shockingly, they are ex- they're ex- exploiting them for se- selfish gain, even to the point of murdering them. They murder them by withholding the required food and hoarding it for themselves. That is the shocking truth of what's happening here. And as we have seen, these things can still occur even today, even in a first world country such as the United States. In our passage, we, as I said earlier, James is going to give the wicked rich, those who are wicked and rich, it's funny because I keep saying the wicked rich, I think you, you, you could go the wicked rich like they're wickedly rich, but it's, we're talking about wicked and rich. That he gives them three terrifying consequences for exploiting those in their charge. He warns them, he warns them, these, these wicked and wealthy landowners, that the Lord of hosts will receive the cries of the exploited. The Lord of hosts will receive the cries of the exploited. Look at verse 4. Look at the text. James writes, Behold, The pay of the laborers who have mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. Now let's reset the story here. 
James writes to poor brethren who had been scattered abroad like buckshot around the, the known world. They have been most likely forced out of their comfortable lives because of persecution, which, has come, which came after they proclaimed Christ as their Lord and Messiah. Because of this proclamation of, of Christ as their Lord and Messiah, they lost their way of life. They lost their families in some cases. They lost their abilities to survive without help from other Christians. Now that's important to understand. They cannot survive without the help of other Christians. Unfortunately, in this compromised position, they had fallen prey to some vicious animals. No, I'm not talking about real animals. I'm talking about these wicked landowners. These, these people were rich landlords who were taking advantage of these poor Christians. They were getting richer off their backs. And they probably even were causing, as we said earlier, the death of some of them. These wicked people had associated themselves, uh, basically associated themselves with the church to take advantage of these poor Christians, using them as nothing more than slave labor. In the middle, and, and in the middle of all this lies what we have called the fence riders. Those who, those are people who wouldn't commit one way or the other. They wouldn't stand up for these poor brethren, but they, but they were trying to be friends with the world or with these rich landowners. They were trying to be friends with, they were trying to be friends with the world and remain Christians. Therefore, they had become complicit in the actions of these wicked landowners or landlords. They had even become, had even become complicit with murder. They were just as guilty because they weren't willing to stand up and help. The situation is shocking because it was occurring in the church. James calls out these fence riders by warning them that their proclaimed faith in Christ Jesus didn't match their actions. Therefore, they don't really have a claim on Him as their Messiah. In other words, they're living a big lie. That's the issue. They're living a big lie. John Bunyan says this, At the day of doom, men shall be judged according to their fruits. He says this, he goes on to say this, The question will be asked, were you doers or talkers only? Were you doers or talkers only? End quote. A few weeks ago, we in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, James called out these fence riders for tra- planning to travel to make wealth without considering the plight of these poor brethren. He tells them not to be arrogant and that the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. In other words, it is not necessarily sinful to travel. It is not necessarily sinful to make wealth. But it is very sinful to do so when you know you are leaving your brother or sister in Christ suffering persecution and having great need. You see the wickedness there? That's that's what James is calling them out for. And at the beginning of chapter 5, then James shifted his focus to address the rich landowners directly. We said last week that this wicked group of people would have known what James, James said to them in this letter. They may not have been physically a part of the assembly, but they would have had eyes and ears within the church. And they would have been keenly aware of the, the arrival of the letter from James. And so as such, James calls them out and tells them that God will judge them for their wicked actions. 
He tells them that the wealth which they have hoarded will be a witness against them when God judges them for their wickedness. Look at verse 4 again. James says this. He says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who have mowed your fields and which has been withheld against withheld by you cries out against you. Here we begin to see then precisely how the rich were taking advantage of the poor. You see, these folks lived in an agricultural economy. In other words, they lived off the land. And they received their daily sustenance from the ground. These poor brethren had hired themselves out to care for, their, for the crops, and, but, but they were not being paid for their labors. They, they, their right, rightfully earned wages were not coming to them. They were being held back. To fully appreciate the situation, we must understand the social structure at the time. You see, the period had witnessed an increasing concentration of, of land holding in the hands of a few wealthy people. As a result, many farmers were forced to earn their living by hiring themselves out to these rich landlords. James, James, Jesus, that is, sets his parable about the workers in the vineyard. Well, I think we read it a few weeks ago, Matthew 21 through 16. It set uh, the background as, as these people had hired themselves out as day laborers. So they go to these landlords and they, they, pay, they get paid for a day's work. In the parable, then, it is significant to understand that the workers expected their pay at the end of the day. So they work a day, and they get paid. So they're work-a-day people. So prompt payment would have been significant for the laborer because these people often got by on a subsistence level, meaning that they lived literally day to day. They made money today in order to eat today. They needed this steady income to provide daily bread for their families. And in a society where there was no credit, or very little credit, failure to pay workers promptly could jeopardize life itself. We see this in Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15, where Moses warned the Israelites, listen, Deuteronomy 24, 14, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. So you see there that Moses is telling the Israelites, you must pay your people. You must pay them today. Because that's what they expect. That's what they need. Poor. Shows God's heart for those who labor and, and for those who labor and are oppressed. Again, we, we see that God expects us to treat all men rightly, with equity. As, as such, He expects us to have those who have more wealth and more power to deal fairly with those who have less. Now, he doesn't, he's not talking about leveling the playing field. He's talking about dealing rightly with justice toward those who, who have less. He expected then these landowners to care for their people. They had a responsibility for them. In verse 3, James told them that their riches would become a witness against them. You see, they had become rich by defrauding the poor, and James had warned them that God would judge them for it. Now we see how they did it. They weren't paying them, or at least they weren't paying them enough. 
They sold their produce, which had been harvested by the poor, and took the money, and they hoarded it for themselves. And they didn't, they didn't give them the food nor the money to buy food. They didn't necessarily, again, hold it all back, but they held back enough to cause great struggle. And James says that that pay which has been withheld, it cries out. In other words, it has become a witness against them. And that outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Now, frankly, this is one of the most terrifying and comforting of all verses in Scripture. The Lord of hosts receives the cries of the exploited. It is terrifying for those who attempt to cheat others from what is rightly theirs. God Himself will hear the cries of the exploited and will judge their wicked oppressors. Their crying out then is an echo of Deuteronomy 24.15. But here James says that the wages themselves are crying out. It's the wages that they have, that they have withheld. If this imagery should remind us of Abel's blood crying out from the ground, crying out for justice. The justice of God. It's Genesis 4.10. We should understand then that when then God's people utter cries, they're often pleading for, with God for deliverance from, from, the, from danger and for justice. And cries have reached the Lord of the Sabbath or the Lord of hosts. This title pictures God as a powerful leader, leader of a great army. Could be an earthly army. That's in 1 Samuel, Samuel 17.45 where David expresses his confidence in the outcome of his fight, claiming that, it, that uh, to come in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. But more often it is the heavenly host that God has pictured as leading. You see, Isaiah saw the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth, in his famous vision in Isaiah 6. And that, that title became a favorite of his. He uses it in, the, in descriptions of God's judgment, especially upon Israel and the nations. And in Isaiah 5.9, if you, if you read that, and we don't have time to go into it, but in Isaiah 5.9, this judgment is explicitly linked, linked to the oppression of the poor. Therefore, when James affirms that the wrongdoing of the rich has become known to God, he makes clear that, that this God is holy and powerful and determined to judge those who infringe His commandments. Here's the fantastic part which speaks to many of the issues we see today. God is the one who will bring justice in His due time. God is the one who will bring justice in His due time. James says that the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the armies of angels. In other words, it may seem as though you are getting away with these things as the rich, wicked, rich landowner, but you will not escape. You will not get away with it. It may also seem that the suffering of the oppressed will not be lifted, but those who persevere in Christ, they can take great comfort in what the future holds for them. That's James's promise, that's God's promise through James. But you see, their future comfort in Christ does not alleviate our responsibility to help those who have genuine need. But we can take great comfort in knowing that God Himself will make these things right. That God Himself has heard the cries of the oppressed. He will judge the oppressors and He will comfort the oppressed. 
but the right answers, though, to this oppression is not ultimately political answers, right? Amen. The correct answer is to judge, or is to trust, is is to trust in the only righteous judge, the one who can bring righteous justice. Amazingly, the gospel is the answer then for both the oppressor and the oppressed. Let that sink in. The the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the answer for both the oppressor and the oppressed. True justice shows us that both the oppressor and the oppressed have sinned against the holy God. The oppressor must come to this understanding and repent of his actions. The oppressed must come to know that he is no better than the one who oppresses him. Let that sink in just a little bit. The one who has been oppressed must come to know that he is no better than the one who oppresses him. And as such, he must repent and turn from his sinful ways and he must pray for his oppressor and persevere to the end. That's God's answer to all of this. Nowhere does God permit us to lash out against those who oppress us. Nowhere does He give us permission to make emotional decisions and and react in unrighteousness. Well, that's different than what the world says, right? He comforts us and shows us that He is the righteous judge and He has heard the cry of the exploited. But our culture is so soft that we can't hear words like this, right? Just yesterday, I heard a discussion about a football player who had decided to quit his team mid-season over the lack of playing time. How trite, right? The commentator that was was talking about this, here's what he said. I I, I was amazed. I was amazed when I heard this. He said that his feelings were hurt. So he had a right to make the decision that he did. So the coaches had hurt his feelings by not playing him. And so he had the right to quit his team mid-season, right? Our culture has become so soft that that's kind of a kind of thing that we condone. Beloved, bad things happen to us. Bad things happen. Bad situations occur. But these things never justify our unrighteous actions. Going back to the story about wage theft that I gave earlier, the big bad company we are working for may just be unjust. But this never justifies ungodliness on our part. We are to wait for the justice of God. There are those in our culture who are buying into the concept of social justice and conflating it with biblical justice. They point to specific groups who say they have more privilege than others. You see men are more privileged than women. Heterosexuals are more privileged than homosexuals. It goes on and on and on. And as such, they're setting these groups against one another. So they're they're setting these, these groups against one another so that they fight. There's no doubt that injustice is beloved. There's no doubt that injustices exist. But this does not justify wicked responses. Beloved, this confusion has even entered the church. It's hard to know for sure what these groups want, but it seems that they're calling for economic justice. And many believe that this justice should be meted out by the government through laws and judgments. But this thinking is really rooted in Marxist under, a Marxist understanding, right? Basically, the mantra of this, of this movement is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. 
And many, many are willing even to resort to violence to get what they demand. It's okay. It's fine because, because, that, because we deserve this. It's fine if we resort to violence because we deserve it. But beloved, Scripture does not support this thinking. From Scripture, we see that God expects people to be just in their dealings with one another on an individual level. He expects you to pay an, an honest day's pay for an honest day's of work. That's the expectation. So when, when one group truly oppresses another, we are to follow Jesus and James in helping the oppressed and warning the oppressors that they face what? Not our righteous judgment. Not my righteous judgment. Not your righteous judgment. But whose righteous judgment? God's righteous judgment. That's the point here. It's God's justice. You see, it's dangerous to expect that the government would be able to level the playing field righteously. It's never going to happen. It's even more dangerous to resort to violence to get what we desire. Beloved, let me say this. And this is clear from Scripture and it's clear from our passage. Where sin exists, there will be oppression. Where sin exists, there will be oppression. If we expect the government to make things right, the government will become the oppressor. Which is much worse because all the power will be be even more concentrated. On the other hand, we must understand that each of these groups that I've mentioned have one thing in common. We have all sinned and, and sinned against a holy God. We all deserve what? Justice. We deserve justice. The justice of God. His wrath. We all must repent and turn to Christ who alone judges righteously. If there is real oppression, we need to pray for the oppressors and we need to help the oppressed. Yes, we, have a, we should have a righteous indignation when we, when we witness oppression. But we must trust God and His righteous judgment to make things right. We, let me just say this, again, uh, this, this as well. We will not be able to eradicate oppression in a sinful world. We won't. It won't happen. But the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of hosts, He hears the cries of the oppressed and He will repay the oppressors with, a, with justice and with vengeance. That's point number two. Point number two, He will repay with vengeance and justice. Look at the text, verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. James returns to this theme of judgment for those who have taken advantage of the poor. He uses two verbs to to vividly describe the, the, the oppressor's lifestyle. He says you have lived luxuriously. This, this, word, this word, this verb, doesn't necessarily have a negative connotation. In, in Nehemiah 9.25, uh, God, it's used to describe the ease of life that God granted the Israelites for their obedience in conquering the land. And Nehemiah 9.25 says, So they ate and were filled and grew fat and reveled in your great goodness. But James uses it here to depict a, a sinful, self-indulgent lifestyle. 
The second verb that he uses is more exclusively negative. In 1 Timothy 5, 6, it says, But she who gives herself, speaking of the widow, who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. This wants and pleasure, same word. In, in the Septuagint, in Ezekiel 16, 49, the people of Sodom are condemned for having abundant food and careless ease, but did not help the poor and needy. Look at the text. James says that those who have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure, they have fattened their hearts in the day of, of slaughter. James connects this day of slaughter to the day of judgment that's coming. With the, it's the coming of the Lord, the parousia. This term denotes the return of Christ and glory at the end of history. It is therefore far more likely that the day of slaughter is a vivid description then of this day of judgment. The Bible often uses slaughter, the imagery of slaughter in battle to describe this day that's coming. Revelation 19 is graphic in its description of this coming day. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen along. Revelation 19. I just want to read what, what John writes, starting in verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come and come assemble for the great supper of the Lord, or of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of, of the beast. And those who worshipped in his image, in his image those two, these two that is, were thrown alive in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were what? They were filled with their flesh. This day of slaughter. This coming day of the Lord that we all face if we don't know Christ, if we're not in Him, if we have not bowed the knee now, today. You can also look at Ezekiel seven fourteen through twenty three to tie this this slaughter this day of this day of slaughter that's coming uh, to the day of judgment. James's point then is clear: the rich have selfishly and ignorantly gone about accumulating wealth for themselves, and they're wastefully spending it on their pleasures on on the very day when God's judgment is imminently threatened. The last days have already, already begun. The judgment could come upon them at any time, and yet they sit and fatten themselves for the slaughter. The rich, instead of acting to avoid that judgment, are by their selfish in, in, indulgence incurring greater guilt. They're like cattle being fattened for the kill. The Lord will bring justice and He will repay with vengeance. He will, he will bring justice and He will repay with a vengeance. That is coming, my beloved. 
And thirdly, he will resist their devices. Thirdly, the Lord of hosts will resist their devices. Back in James. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. James ends this warning with an utterly shocking statement. He tells them that they have condemned and put to death the righteous man. In other words, they're using an ungodly system of judgment to condemn those who are righteous. And they are murdering righteous ones. Now there's some who would try to soften this language. But I I believe James is very precise in what he says. There are those who have died as a direct result of their, their wicked actions. And you can make actually an argument in the language that he's speaking of the murder of the Lord Jesus. Again, because it, again, I think James is intentional here. The phrase could be translated, uh, translated the righteous, or the righteous man, or the righteous one. Now, the righteous one could be connected as a title applied to Jesus by Peter in Acts 3.14, by Stephen in Acts 7.52, and by Paul in, in Acts 22.14. You can read those yourself. Therefore, James could be speaking of the crucifixion of our Lord, that they put to death the righteous one. That there are many parallels, though, then, between what these wealthy landowners are doing and what was unjustly done to our Lord. I think James, though, is speaking directly to the murder of these poor brethren. But there's a sense of that parallel that is, that is there, right? The, the backdrop of this is undoubtedly the cross of Christ and the sufferings of our Lord. Look, at me, look with me to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. Look at verse 20. Peter writes, For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with you endure it with patience. But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patient patient suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges what? Judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by His wounds you were healed. Jesus then is our supreme example of suffering. And we should expect to follow in His footsteps. You see the, the parallel then. The, the suffering of, of, the, of our Lord and the suffering of these poor brethren. And so James, I think, is, is drawing on that parallel. That they put to death the righteous ones. 
They are putting these godly people to death just as they put the Lord of glory to death. Indeed, doesn't this fact turn the notion of social justice on its, on its head? Doesn't it turn it on its head? As Christians, we can never expect true justice in this lifetime because we, we understand the sinfulness of man. If there was true justice, in, frankly, if there's true justice in this lifetime, we would be judged for our sinfulness. God's wrath would come upon us now, right? But it's His mercy that, that makes Him hold back. God never promised a level playing field in this world. There will always be inequities. We have been promised to suffer for following our Lord Jesus. But this does not keep the oppressors from facing the righteous, righteous judgment of God. James finishes by saying he does not resist you. He does not resist you. This phrase could be understood in a couple of different ways. A straightforward reading of it says that the righteous man does not resist. And that would fit, right? With, that, with the, the passage that we saw in 1 Peter, that Christ did not revile in return, right? The righteous man does not, does not resist. In other words, the righteous ones follow in the footsteps of their Lord by not resisting the evil perpetrated against them. Again, this should impact our understanding of social justice, right? God expects righteous men to endure with patience when unrighteous men oppress them. That's the expectation. This call for, for patience is indeed different than the expectation of social justice in our times. But there is another way. There is actually another way we could understand this phrase. You see, in James's day, when this was written, and when it was, when it was copied, writing materials were expensive and difficult to procure. So to conserve materials, they, they pushed the letters together and they removed, they don't have any punctuation in the Greek text. Now, for the most part, we can under, understand the text by gr- grammatical structure and context. As such, then, as such, this phrase could actually be understood as a question. It could be translated, does he not resist you? The question then becomes, what is, who is the he? In context, the he is most likely God himself. In other words, does God not resist you? Now, if this is the correct interpretation... If this is the correct translation and interpretation, then it connects back to James 4, 6, where the text says that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word translated in 4, 6, the word translated opposed, is the same exact word used in 5, 6. Does He not resist you? Either way. Either way, the righteous man who is impressed, oppressed, that is, must not resist the oppression in some ungodly way. And we must know that God does resist. He does resist the proud. He does resist the oppressors. And He will punish them. Augustine said this, Punishment is justice for the unjust. Punishment is justice for the unjust. 
God will, will resist the devices of the wicked. And He will give grace to the humble. Now, as we conclude, do you remember those two articles we opened with? I want you to know that God is concerned with dishonest scales. If any of you are here and have those who work for you, then you've been warned. God expects you to pay your people a fair wage promptly. But as we have seen, that's, I don't think that's the main point of the passage. I don't think it's the main point at all. We've also come to see that social justice is not the main point of the passage either. For certain, there are those who are in our society who have been oppressed and are oppressed and they need our help. In our culture, very few people are poor like those described in James, but we are called to help the oppressed. There's no doubt. The unborn may be the most oppressed in our time, right? Abortion is the greatest, the greatest tragedy of our time. We must fight for the unborn, we must, but we must trust that their cries have reached the Lord of hosts. We must trust that. We must, we must trust that He is fighting for them and that He will resist those who uh, perpetrate that evil. But I want to go a little bit different direction here. We live in a country of outrage. We seem to be outraged by every little thing. We're outraged when somebody cuts us off in traffic, when somebody cuts in line at Disney or McDonald's. It doesn't matter. We're outraged. We're outraged because time clocks cheat us out of a few minutes. This week we were outraged at the Kavanaugh hearings. Some were outraged because his nomination hadn't been shut down, while others are outraged because, because of uh, the, the opposition to his appointment. Next week we'll find something else to be outraged about, probably some, tr- some tweet from Donald Trump or some straw in a turtle's nose. You know what I'm talking about. We are out when we're outraged about everything, then we are outraged about nothing. We live in a world of injustices. You understand that? We live in a world of injustices. Beloved, do you struggle when you've been wronged? How do you react? Do you trust that God hears your cries? Or do you get angry and lash out? Do you demand justice on your terms? Do you get outraged at every little thing? Beloved, do you realize what it would look like if you received the justice you deserve? Do you realize what it would look like? You have offended a holy God and deserve His wrath. Where is the outrage about that? Yet Jesus took the wrath upon Himself. The most violent expression of God's wrath. This is R.C. Sproul. The most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. If ever a person had room to complain about injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment must be focused. End quote. Brethren, Jesus, Jesus, He was the only just man ever to be punished by God. Let that statement sink in for a moment. Think about your own situation. Maybe there are things that you are, are maybe there are things that aren't what you want them to be. 
But if you've tasted the kindness of Lord and the Lord and salvation, you will never taste the wrath of God for your sins. Again, R.C. Sproul. There are only two ways that God's justice can be satisfied with respect to your sin. Either you satisfy it, or Christ satisfies it. You can satisfy it by being banished from God's presence forever, or you can accept the satisfaction that Jesus Christ has made. End quote. Brothers and sisters, I, I beg you, no matter how bad you have it here, it could be much, much worse for you. You could be banished from the presence of God forever in order to satisfy God's justice. Think about that next time someone does something wrong. Think about that next time you get cut off in traffic or whatever little thing that you want to be outraged about. You see, James does not... He does not promise these suffering Christians that all injustice will or even should end in this life. Let that sink in. You read the book of James, or the letter of James, he never says that this, these injustices should end. He comforts them through it. He tells them to endure. He tells them that they will grow in holiness as they persevere. He shows them that they will receive the crown of life which has been promised to those who persevere in His, in his love. He warns the oppressors that they face God's judgment. He never tells them that God will stop the oppression in this life. We are never told that our suffering will end. As a matter of fact... It's only promised that it will continue. Yet we gladly suffer for Christ's sake because of what He's done for us. Namely, by His death on the cross, He has satisfied the justice that sin demands. Charles Spurgeon, God in His infinite mercy has devised a way by which justice can be satisfied. And yet, mercy can be triumphant. Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, took upon Himself the form of man and offered unto divine justice that which was accepted as an equivalent for the punishment due to all His people. Beloved people don't need social justice. They need a Savior. They need mercy which can be found only at the cross. Yes, we need to help the oppressed with their physical needs. And we need to help right the wrongs where we can. But we need to understand that the good news of the cross is the greatest need of the oppressed and the oppressors. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning. Praise you for this time. Father, we know... And if we received what we justly deserve, that we would see nothing but wrath. That might seem harsh in in the culture that we live in, a culture that's bent on emotional feelings, making sure feelings are not hurt, making sure that there's a level playing field for everyone, a, a culture where everyone gets a trophy, 
But Lord, we're not promised that life will be easy. We're promised a crown of life for persevering through suffering. We praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.